The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the host of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a fascinating conversation on an article recently published in CHEST entitled, COVID, Lessons Learned, Lessons Unlearned, and Lessons for the Future. Today, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Stephen Hollenberg as our guest, and he was the first author of this publication. Stephen, can you please introduce yourself? I uh, thank you, Dominique, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, my name is Steve Hollenberg. Um, I'm a professor of medicine at the Emory University School of Medicine, uh, and I'm the director of cardiac intensive care in the Emory Heart and Vascular Center. Uh, I am trained in critical care at the NIH, where you trained in critical care, and also in cardiology at Johns Hopkins. Um, and just by way of introduction, during the pandemic, I was practicing in a uh, cardiac surgical intensive care unit in Hackensack University Medical Center. Uh, and now I'm in Atlanta working in cardiac care units uh, and an outpatient practice. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, especially with uh, your expertise. Um, this podcast is long overdue. Um, we experienced a, a frightening pandemic um, with the repercussions to all uh, sectors of our uh, healthcare uh, centers. And it's important to take some time to reflect on what happened and what we can learn for the future. So I guess my first question to you is, um, why did the CHESS Critical Care Editorial Board decide to reflect on COVID? Um, in terms of their thinking with regards to medicine, and what is the process for obtaining responses um, from the authors listed in the uh, article? So uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked because I think it is useful to understand what we did uh, and to some extent what we didn't do. So this isn't an official response of the chest editorial board, as in uh, an official position of either the editorial board or chest. Um, but uh, clearly, as you as you know, it was a cataclysmic change for the healthcare system, and many of us did things very differently than the way we had done before. So we thought that we would take a chance to reflect on, on essentially what we've learned. Um, and so uh, what we decided to do was to pose three relatively straightforward questions and to send them to the volunteers, volunteers on the editorial board, and to say next to nothing other than that. So it was really open-ended. Um, what are you going to stop doing that you used to do? What are you going to do that you didn't used to do? And what do you think the healthcare system should do to change in the future? And so that was designed to be open-ended. 
Uh, and it was designed to get a diversity of responses from people with a number of diverse perspectives. And frankly, I think it really succeeded in doing that. And I guess I should say uh, is that the hope is that the readers of the journal will also engage in this process and that they will come and give us their perspectives and tell us what they think we got right and also what they think we got wrong and maybe how their perspectives differ from ours and, and to some extent how their situations differ from the situations that we were in. Um, Chest editorial board members are, in general, academic physicians in large medical centers, um, and that wasn't the experience of everybody in COVID, and I think we'd really like to hear some of those perspectives. Great, and as you said, you know, this is expert opinion, and we welcome uh, further responses. I think what was great about the authors listed here is they came from um, all corners of the, uh, the United States, um, the, the Pacific Northwest, uh, California, the Northeast, and, and the South. So, great to hear different perspectives. Um, so, Steve, let's get uh, started with that first question. What practices um, do you think that you would abandon um, given what happened in the COVID uh, pandemic? So um, I'm going to answer for me, and then uh, and then to some extent, I'll, I'll sort of try to give a consensus of what the group thought, or or what other people, uh, perspectives of other people in the group. So um, to me, I took a, uh, a, if you will, a philosophical view, and and the uh, there was an impulse early on when there was a terrible camp pandemic and nobody knew what to do. Um, there was this impulse that you have to do something. You can't just, you can't just not do anything. You have to do something. You have to try something. And I think that's a, that's a natural impulse. Um, but as the pandemic progressed, that impulse persisted and we wound up with, to some extent, an attitude that says, well, you have to try it. Even if you don't know whether it works, even if there are no data, it, it can't hurt to try it. And I kind of have gone away from that perspective, particularly as some data accumulated that suggested that some things did work and also to some extent that some things didn't work. Um, there was still this impulse to, well, why not just give this compound that you heard of on the internet? Um, and, and I've sort of come to, to think that that has downsides in sort of two different aspects. And, um, and I think it's subtler than usually uh, construed. So I think in the first case uh, that there's, if it's untested and you have a tested therapy, there's no guarantee that adding an untested therapy to a tested therapy is going to be neutral. The untested therapy might actually make the tested therapy that works stop working. And you don't know that if you didn't test it. So it may not be entirely benign to just take some vitamin pill that somebody that you can get over the counter along with, uh, with a proven therapy. Uh, and, and so that's, that's the first part. Um, and, and I, I have to say there was some of the argument against doing these was on the basis of unknown toxicity. And I'm not so sure that was the strongest argument. It's probably not a, to a lot of toxicity of, of taking a vitamin that everybody takes and isn't very toxic or alternatively a therapy that has been in use for a long time for other things that seems relatively benign. But the reason you shouldn't take it is that you're not sure it will work and you're not sure that it will stop something else from working. 
And even more importantly, and this is where the scientific side comes in, um, what you lose is the opportunity to do a the best clinical trial you can do. Uh, and so it's clear that we needed to try to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And, and a, a trial design that says we're going to try this compound versus placebo, and everybody's going to take six other things according to what they really feel like taking, is sort of an ugly trial design, and it's not really the best way to, to test a compound. So I, I really thought that institutions, to the extent possible, were better off saying that they probably should not be giving unapproved therapies outside of a clinical trial. That inside of clinical trial uh, was the perfectly good way to test therapies, but outside, we probably shouldn't be doing that. Um, and, and the other thing, this is a sort of a long answer, but the other thing that I think also played into that perspective was that at the height of the pandemic, um, and I should say at the height of pandemic in Hackensack, in an 800-bed hospital in April 2020, we had 550 COVID patients. We had 210 in critical care and 170 on ventilators. And so you had all sorts of people, all the caretakers from the entire institution that uh, were called into service to take care of COVID patients. So if you have somebody who's not used to doing critical care and you want them to do critical care of a COVID patient, you'd like a simple protocol that says, here are the things that we do, and we don't do anything else outside of a clinical trial. So when, when you try to decide what to do, we're going to have a, we're going to do the following things that are, that we think are proven and that we think make sense. And we're really going to try not to do everything else, anything else. We're going to simplify it. And, and to some extent, people did that, but, but trying to figure out which of the four or five or six unapproved therapies that you should give or all of the five or six unapproved therapies that you should give along with the approved therapies is a real challenge for somebody. It's a challenge for somebody in critical care and it's a challenge for somebody outside of critical care. And so my perspective on that, it, it, it may sound like I'm being, uh, a little too pure scientifically, and and maybe there are some people who think so, but I, I'm really and and so I don't want to be too absolute about this, but I, I really think that um, it, it's there is a downside to just doing something and and not waiting for data. You're absolutely right, especially um, with the fact that the media took up a lot of these unscientific uh, therapies, and initially patients were using them, and then they became steadfastly believing in them and started using therapies to the exclusion of therapies that actually worked, um, compromising their care. So I think you raise a very important uh, point there. Um, and, and another um, practice that a number of clinicians uh, suggested was that they that they should abandon was regular chest X-rays, echoes, EKG. Um, what is the perspective on the group on that? I, I think, yes. So um, I think there's a lot of, um, uh, we learned we learned that a lot of things that we, we thought we really had to do, um, we didn't really have to do. Uh, so, so certainly early on, there were concerns about protecting the staff. And so every time you sent somebody into the room to do something, you were to some extent putting them at risk. Um, and they had to, and even with the gown and this and that, and uh, uh, there was very little reluctance to go to gown up and go into the room. That wasn't the problem. But uh, those of us ordering things appropriately asked, "Do we really need this? Do we really need a chest X-ray every day? 
do we really need uh, this? And, and asking more, more pointedly the question we probably should always ask, how will this test change our therapy? And if it won't change our therapy, why are we doing it? So I do think that was a lesson. It, it, I don't know that that was a new lesson that nobody knew. It was a lesson that we kind of knew that got reinforced by the pandemic. And then an interesting one that I heard was, uh, the, the reading the article, was the need to be called a hero. Um, I think this was especially true um, in New York, where um, there was this big push uh, to call uh, physicians, nurses, uh, therapists, heroes. And then as time went on, it tended to uh, backfire. Uh, what, what is the thoughts of the group on that? Yeah, I think that I think that's a that's a really uh, it's a, it's a really interesting perspective, uh, um, and I, I'm really glad that Geneva Tatum uh, agreed to join us because she does have uh, a a unique perspective uh, practicing where she is up at uh, up in Michigan, uh, and and I do think that I think that um, in the uh, you're exactly right. Early on, there were people banging on pots and pans in New York and uh, and 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 calling everybody a hero but but down the road uh then uh then there was sort of the hero mortality i can't take a day off i can't take care of myself i have to be uh you know the hero is is to some extent uh if you think about the hero mythology the hero is selfless often at the hero's own expense um and that may be sustainable for a short time but it's not sustainable for a long time and and then I think as the pandemic progressed, we wound up with issues of burnout. And and we one of the themes that really does come through the piece is that one of the things we really do have to do is to think about taking care of of the personnel. And that goes all the way down the line from uh, from the support staff to the nursing staff, to the pharmacy, to the trainees to the attending physicians. Um, we really do need to think about, uh, about cultural changes, uh, cultural uh, safety, and, and also how to, how to give support to people and how to figure out when people need support, even if they don't tell you that they do. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Geneva's insight was really uh, uh, impressive, especially given the burnout uh, that we've seen uh, subsequent to this pandemic. So, Steve, let's turn our attention to practices that we should adopt going forward. Um, we learned a lot from this uh, pandemic in terms of managing patients in critical care and even um, managing ourselves and managing our institutions. What practices did the group decide that we need to adopt going forward? So um, I'm, I'm going to start with I'm going to start with what I did, and then we'll talk about all the better ideas that people in the in the in the group had. So um, I sort of started with the uh, with the follow up to the notion of testing and trying to look at tested therapies, and um, I think so. I, we sort of I sort of took the perspective of physicians as advocates for science and, if you will, clinical science in this context. And you sort of alluded to this. Some of this, a lot of information went out on the internet. Uh, some of it was curated, but a lot of it wasn't. Uh, some of it was scientific, but a lot of it wasn't. And, and I think it's clear that um, we need to follow the science. We needed to do a better job of following the science in the COVID pandemic and we need to do a better job of following the science in the next crisis. And you know it's going to come sooner or later. Um, and one thing we need to, so 
physicians are uh, poised to be advocates for science. It's not a role that we seem to that before we would have thought that we needed to do. We take care of patients one at a time. We talk to patients one at a time. We're active in local practices and local governance, but we don't necessarily go out and advocate for science and not necessarily in broad media, but in the community. Um, you have you have a voice of authority. Well, I'm in the hospital taking care of these people and 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 you're not. And maybe you should. And I think science helps. And maybe you should think twice before you say that science doesn't help unless you're, you're standing in my shoes. And I think we need to do a, a little bit more of that. Um, and we need to figure out how to do that more effectively. Um, so that's sort of a uh, as as with the first one, a little bit of a, a philosophical point of view. So uh, I, I don't know whether you want to follow up on that, and then we'll talk about the the rest of the of the things that people should do going forward. Yeah, I think I will um, because I think you highlighted an, an important point. Um, I think a lot of um, clinicians, physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists um, took it for granted um, that science. Uh, was uh, respected and held up by many, whereas uh, I think this pandemic exposed for us um, that there are some who don't believe in it um, and that sometimes it's necessary for clinicians to stand up and say, we need to believe in science and we need to follow where the science goes because that's what is going to get patients better if we follow a non-scientific approach a lot of people will die and a lot of people did die unnecessarily. So I think you're absolutely right on that, Steve. And, and, you know, I, I, I think, uh, with, with, without, I guess I will get into what, what some people could think is controversy, but I don't happen to think vaccination is especially controversial and it clearly works. Um, and I, I don't know whether people outside the medical system have a sense. There's a certain anger, uh, in the, at least in the middle of the pandemic, uh, uh of, of from from uh, people in the hospital saying, I'm getting up, I'm exposing myself, I'm doing this, and and you can't get a vaccine um, because because and and it's almost um, I, I the the other thing we we lost to some extent is uh, at least in some aspects is the sense of an obligation to society. Um, there's, there's a tension in our society between, if you will, individual rights and an obligation to society. And I think that, uh, any reasonable person has to believe that there's an aspect of both. Um, you can't have just one and you can't have just another. And in this case, the balance of an obligation to society involves vaccinating yourself so you don't infect somebody else, perhaps somebody who's immunosuppressed. Perhaps somebody who can't get the vaccine for uh, for some reason, and and that's sort of an example of how um, we need. I, I guess it's it's not only. I didn't quite say this. It's not only a sense of uh, we we not only have to advocate for science, but we have to advocate for the healthcare system as a whole, and to say that that we all we are all responsible for the health of a nation, at least to some extent. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, to turn our attention to um, the, the folks in the ICU, um, uh, one of the authors mentioned the importance of um, giving uh, neuromuscular blockades um, for uh, ICU intubations, which I thought was very important. It, I was unaware that a lot of folks intubated without neuromuscular blockades, and um, it definitely helps uh, with uh, getting that airway open and ensuring an easier intubation. And then the second aspect was recognizing the acutely dying patient, which I think um, is really important. Uh, sometimes we prolong therapies unnecessarily um, because we're hoping for, you know, one final glimmer of, you know, the patient turning when it's pretty obvious that um, the patient is not going to improve and it's important to speak to the family at that time. Maybe you could comment on those two points, Steve. I think I think those are I think those are both uh, important points, and um, this is sort of the the example Bram Rockberg talked uh, about uh, the neuromuscular blockade, and you know it was it was a little bit of I think it was a little bit of, of voodoo. You know, some of us grew up with um, you know you you, sh you shouldn't use neuromuscular blockade unless you're sure it's absolutely necessary because you might not be able to intubate somebody. That's a little bit. It's a little bit from the anesthesia culture where the anesthesia disaster is paralyzing somebody and not being able to intubate them. Um, the ICU disaster is not being able to intubate somebody uh, when they desperately need to be intubated right away. This isn't an elective intubation in the OR. This is a, a very sick patient. So you want to do it the uh you want to do it the fastest way at the most efficient and most effective way possible and that is usually using neuromuscular blockade so um and in particular in this pandemic you don't want people coughing at you and this and that so i think we learned that that's probably the best way to do it in covid and in general the best way to do it in an icu in most situations um i think that's that's also um really important. And, um, and, and the other, um, in terms of, oh, remind me of the second one was, uh, uh the recognizing the acutely. Oh, oh yeah, the recognition. I, yeah. And, and I think that that's, um, uh, so we, that's part and parcel of an intensivist training is, is end of life care, but, but we tend, we tend not to, not to want to give up in the ICU. Um, and, uh, and that's a laudable impulse not to want to give up. But, uh, but on the other hand, with seasoning, sometimes, uh, you have to recognize that, uh, the signs when it's really, it's really not going to turn out well. And, um, and I also think that that also has to do with the acceptance of uncertainty. So you, you can't, you can't be certain that something isn't going to turn out well, but 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 you can see the tea leaves in many, if not most cases, and you can sort of get the sense. And I think that we need to we need to, to sort of give up a little quick more quickly than uh, than otherwise. I, I my own bias is that that's something that more seasoned intensivists uh, do more often as they get later in their careers. Um, they, they, they become a little more accepting of, of giving up and recognizing dying. And it's important because, uh, we have an important role to make people, uh, to make people get better in the ICU, but we have an equally important role, uh, in cases that aren't going to turn out well to manage end of life with comfort and dignity. Uh, and, and that's something that, we really that is really important and we need to know when to turn from one to the other.
Agree. And then to turn our attention to uh, one other practice that the, the, that the author has recommended adopting forward, um, reflective teaching and debriefing. Um, and I think it pertains particularly to um, this issue of burnout, um, recognizing a burnout both in ourselves and in our fellow clinicians um, and reflecting on certain situations that have made that come to the fore or made us aware of it. Um, it really seemed incredible that the COVID pandemic made us made burnout such a, a big issue, um, and how we respond to it. Maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, I think I think that was a great point, and I, I should say that you know I, I I wrote my little piece, and then everybody else wrote their piece, and I went, oh, I wish I had written that. Um, and and the debriefing part is, was is really really important. Um, and I think so, and, and it functions on a number of levels, but as, as you mentioned, uh, with respect to burnout, it, it's really important. I think the other important thing about debriefing is that uh, debriefing occurs at many levels. It, it should include the nursing staff and the other staff and the training staff. And the idea is to reflect on what's happened, um, not only to learn from from what what might have been done differently, which is sort of the classic role of debriefing, but in this context, to provide psychological support. So a debriefing says uh, says two things. Um, it, if if you will, implicitly. So one, it says we're a team. This isn't and this isn't the failure of any one person or the success of any one person. This is a team effort. And the second thing is that as a team, we're all here to support each other. So if it didn't turn out well and, and somebody is, is feeling bad about that, a debriefing is a time for them to be able to say that and for other people to be able to support them or even at the moment or even later uh, to recognize that one member of the team is feeling bad about something that happened and they might need a little bit of support, maybe a couple of days down the road, maybe in the moment, it isn't the time, but later, a couple of days down the road, you can sit them down and say, how are you feeling about this? How are you processing this? What can we do to help? Definitely. So let's turn our attention to uh, the future. So, um, we learned a lot of lessons uh, from this pandemic, and there are necessary changes that the health system should adopt um, because guess what? There will be another pandemic, uh, if not in the next five years, then in the next 10 years. Uh, what suggestions that the authors have? So I think they had some, I, I think they had some really great suggestions. So I think uh, one thing we learned, uh, I think a lot of it had to do with personnel um, and, and I think David Jantz said this, um, we ran out of nurses long before we ran out of ventilators. Um, and so personnel, and, and we should stockpile people, not equipment. And that, means, uh, and that means that we have to anticipate and we have to train people and we have to support them um, at, at any number of levels. Um, and, and so... Um, and and so we have to uh, we have to think about nursing shortages. We have to think about burnout, um, and we also have to increase flexibility of staffing. Uh, we 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 cross trained a lot of people. We flex staffing, and we're going to need to do that going forward. The what one of the things Mark Molesker, the pharmacist in the group, pointed out that 
pharmacy resources are, are scarce and there are shortages. And we've seen this. We saw this before COVID and we're still seeing it after. Um, and uh, it's really important for us to think broadly about uh, the availability of pharmaceutical drugs. And I don't know, right now we're dealing with the dobutamine shortage in, in my ICU and learning what to do. And we really need to, to coordinate on a systemic level. Hospital systems are doing this, but all also on a broader level. Um, and I think that brings, brings us to another point about coordination. Um, I think that one of the things that we learned was that coordinated responses are better than fragmented responses. Uh, and at one point you had, um, you had uh, personal protective equipment and you had uh, states, you had systems bidding against each other and you had states bidding against each other. And that doesn't make, it didn't make much sense. So going forward, we're going to have to figure out how to distribute resources um, in a more equitable fashion. Um, and and that does bring up a point I, I really definitely want to bring up going forward. Um, and that is that one thing that we that we was emphasized by the pandemic, again, something that was there before and will and is still certainly still there afterwards, are biases and inequity. Um, it's clear that the burden of COVID was not equally distributed. It was it was disproportionately uh, distributed into various underprivileged communities and under, and certain locations. Um, and we really need to address that um, because one thing the pandemic taught us is if, if, if we're giving it to each other, then everybody has to be, in, we have to treat everybody. We can't leave anybody out of the healthcare system. And so a uh, greater attention to biases and equity is, is vital as we move forward. And we in the medical community and we as citizens of a democracy need to think about how to work to address that. I want to come back to this issue of um, adequate staffing. And if anything that we've seen is uh, most ICUs, uh, the nursing staff have turned over. We've got a lot of junior um, nurses that have joined and the more senior ones have left. The same has happened um, with our ICU clinicians. Um, a lot of them have left and um, there's a critical shortage of um, ICU trained personnel. How are we going to get past this hump? Uh, how are we going to solve this problem? Yeah. Um, so I think that that's, um, I think that uh, there are a number of aspects to that. Um, uh, from our perspective, I think that in learning how to be better ICU clinicians from, from the physician perspective and to design better systems, we will make ICU practice more attractive. So um, so we, we lost a lot of people because they burned out. So the way forward is to prevent burnout by providing more support for the people who are there. Um, and, and the way to, uh, and the way to keep people in an ICU is to, is to strengthen the, the aspects of the team, um, and, and to make them feel like they're part of a team because that's why and, and at any level, that's why you stay. You stay for your colleagues. Um, and and the uh, it's actually I, I'm guessing that the nurses do a lot more of this than than the doctors do. The nurses change shifts. 
they switch shifts with each other and they pick shifts up for each other to help to help each other with their lives. You know, I, I, I have to pick up my kid at soccer practice. Can you stay late today? Yes, I can do that. They're not doing it because you get paid extra for staying late. They're doing it to help their colleagues. And so I think that as we foster stronger teams in our ICU and as we support our people, we will uh, work to make the ICU a better place. Uh, and, and that's as important in retention as everything else. Um, and the other thing about retention is to compensate people um, appropriately. And again, financial compensation is important. And we need to think about where we're putting the finances in the system because keeping the people well compensated for what they do is an important aspect. Yeah, I think the compensation issue is important because we noted that uh, once the traveling nursing jobs came a lot, a lot of nurses left to go elsewhere and the travelers came to our institutions, they were paid sometimes three times as much as the nurses who had stayed, um, which obviously caused um, some resentment. And then when uh, our current nurses ended up having to pick up uh, three ICU patients, or sometimes in some circumstances, four ICU patients, but were still being compensated um, minimally um, because they weren't a traveler, that caused them to just leave uh, the, the ICU. Um, how do you suggest we address these issues? Because this came up and uh, no one has really you know, addressed this and, and said, you know what, maybe this contributed a lot to the nurses leaving our ICUs. Um, yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a thorny problem and, and I, don't, I, I don't quite know how to address it. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, it, it, is, it is a real problem and in many cases, um, you become a traveling nurse and then get hired back in the same hospital. It's really a challenge. Um, I'll, I'll just give a little bit. So I wish I don't really have a great answer. I, I'll give a little perspective from the unit I was working in at the time. So it was a post-op cardiac surgery unit and the nurses loved working in the post-op cardiac surgical unit. Um, and during COVID, um, we began to do uh, venovenous ECMO, and that that was physically located in the medical ICU. So our ECMO, our cardiac surgical nurses, got rotated up to do to the COVID units, and so then they weren't cardiac surgical nurses anymore. They were COVID nurses. So whereas you might have argued that they were willing to accept this salary to be a cardiac uh, surgical nurse. Um, to be a COVID nurse, they were comparing this salary with the salary they could get as a COVID nurse as a traveler. And that wasn't competitive at all. So I, it's, I don't know that I have an answer to that. It, it's really a challenge for healthcare systems. But I will say that uh, compensation also, so the financial compensation is part of it and certainly an important part of it. And I, I'm not diminishing that. But there are other ways to compensate people. You can make more flexible hours. Um, you can, to some extent, let people work at home to the extent that's possible. Um, it's hard to be a bedside nurse uh, at home, but it is possible for some of our nurses to do some administrative things and some quality improvement things. And you can decide to let them do that at home and let them have flexible hours when that's possible. And that's part of a compensation that might actually help a little bit. Uh, although more money is clearly the best answer. 
Yeah, thank you. I appreciate those insights. And um, as I said in the past, um, it's a nice view because of the critical care nursing, critical care physicians, and we need both. Um, so, um, Steve, uh, going forward, um, how optimistic are you about the future of critical care in America? Um, uh, I think I think I am I, I am optimistic. Um, I, I think that uh, that the field has improved. Uh, it's it's come a long way from uh, from where we were, uh, and and I think that we are we are learning how to integrate uh, into the healthcare systems. Uh, there are challenges, but um, I think the role of an intensivist uh, in within the system and the importance of intensivists within the system is increasingly being recognized because. Intensivists are intrinsically multidisciplinary and intrinsically take the broad view. Um, and, and I think that everybody within the system and even the, even the administrators are beginning to recognize that, that importance. And, and as clinicians, um, I think we are, we are, we are getting better. We're learning, uh, we're learning that it's not just about the medicine. Uh, it's, it's about supporting people. It's about supporting teams. Uh, it's about supporting our trainees and, and teaching them. And it's about, uh, it's about thinking beyond the medical issues into the broader issues with our patients. Um, and as we get better with that, I think that, uh, critical care will continue to advance. This is not to say that we don't have major problems and we'll always have challenges to address. Um, but I, I, I am, I am somewhat optimistic about critical care. That's great to hear. And I do want to give you the opportunity to leave us with any uh, final comments. Um, but before uh, uh, we do that, I just want to remind the audience that um, we're very fortunate to have this article published by experts in the field. Um, they are opinion. It is an opinion piece um, given their reflections on lessons learned, lessons unlearned, and lessons for the future about COVID. And uh, we thank you and the authors for uh, pinning your thoughts uh, to paper and sharing them with us. And we're hoping that uh, people respond and uh, tell us their stories on what they've learned. Steve, I'll give you the last word. Oh, well, thank you. I'd like to thank you for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure to do this. And I, I'd just like to echo this for, for people who are listening and maybe people who aren't listening. Um, I, I, I really encourage people to, to be inter, to embrace the interactive aspect and, and to really tell us, share your perspectives, um, share your thoughts on our perspectives. Um, and let's all try to move forward together. Great. A very big thank you to Dr. Steve Hollenberg for a really fascinating conversation. And a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is The Chess Podcast.